Welcome to Sunday Unschooled, a podcast where we address questions and discuss topics you may not hear in church. Our goal is not to bash a religion, denomination, church, or pastor, but to help educate people no matter where you are in your faith journey. We are your hosts, Elena and Eric. We'll be the first to admit we definitely don't know it all, but we truly believe the answers are found in the Bible. What's up, you guys? Welcome to episode five of Sunday Unschooled. We hope everybody had a great week and we are excited to jump into kind of part two of knowing our enemies Genesis 6. That's a little confusing, right? It can be. <laughs> so Genesis 6 is a pretty intense scripture. If you did not tune in last week, I encourage you to stop listening and go hop on last week's episode, which is episode four, Knowing Our Enemies, Genesis 6a. That is a game changer episode. Um, At least for me, it really changed a lot. So I encourage you to hop off of this episode, listen to that one, and then come join us Um, in Genesis 6b because we have a little bit more to talk about and I want to read to you guys Genesis 6. So we're talking about knowing our enemies and we are looking at the Genesis 6 account that is not really, everybody knows the story of Noah and the flood, but we've gotten it wrong. So I want to read to you Genesis 6 verse 4 And we're going to dive into this part two of Genesis 6. So Genesis 6 verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, which it's talking about the days of Noah when the flood came, and also afterward. Hmm, that's kind of weird. I thought the flood destroyed all the Nephilim. So it says, and also afterwards. So we didn't want to just glance over that and move past that because I'm sure if anyone's like me, that is like a huge, wait, okay, it's really cool that we now know the true story behind the flood, but uh, that's kind of a big deal and afterwards. So can you guys please address that? Yes, we are. Eric is gonna talk about that today and I hope and pray that it all makes sense because this is a lot of info and we ideally we could like have a diagram written out on like a whiteboard or something or like a powerpoint to show you guys and we don't have that in podcast form so we are just going to put the information out there and let holy spirit do the work that only he can do so eric and afterward what like what yeah Well, clearly the scripture, if we follow the text, it it tells us that, as Elena read, these Nephilim, or Nephilim, uh, giants, were on the earth after the flood. This is what the term afterward means in context. They were there after the flood. Now, one thing we're going to get a chance to do here tonight is is sort of break down the, the typical theories of how these guys may have come back. 
something that we, we didn't have a chance to really break down in our Zoom class. Because the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly, right? Doesn't. So we want you guys to know that as we're doing this podcast, we want to try our best to make it clear of this is what the Bible says, these are theories, and these are our opinions. So we hope we um, communicate that well. And because the Bible doesn't, as far as we know, specifically tell us the hows and whys of the and also afterward, we're just going to share some theories and also our opinion um, just so you can know. But we are going to look at scripture as well. Yeah, and just know that even the conjecture and the opinions that, that we may bring, uh, you know, they're based on, on sound uh, hypothesis of understanding the scripture, understanding, uh, reading other material uh, like the book of Enoch and, and other books that, that are considered historical commentary of the Bible. And, um, but of course, we always encourage you to come to your own conclusions, do your own research and, and find it out. Don't take our word for it. But it's really interesting, interesting to dive into these different theories and ideas. So, so let me give you a couple. So one of the theories uh, is that the afterword was that there was a second incursion, uh, which means that there were uh, essentially another group of fallen angels, of supernatural fallen beings that came back to the earth and did the same thing that their buddies in Genesis 6 did. Uh, that's one theory. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that because they know, they probably know what happened to the 200 who did that before. I agree. I think that uh, we're dealing with intelligent evil here and these guys are not idiots. They're not dumb. So I would think that if, uh, if they saw their comrades, the 200 watchers, get punished the way they did, I would think that they would try to stay away from that type of uh, decision and maybe find an alternative way to make it happen. I mean, that's what I would probably do. Yeah, and, I don't know. I mean, and, not that I'm a fallen angel or anything, but you know. <laughs> and that's where there's a couple other theories. One of them was proposed by uh, a, a researcher. And the other one is uh, sort of my claim to fame. <laughs> the theory that I uh, think actually happened, or in my opinion. So the theory of the other researcher is that uh, the uh, DNA of Nephilim actually made it on to the Ark. Um, and uh, I'm not going to really dive into it because I wouldn't do it justice. But uh, if you want to take a look at it, uh, you can look into the wor work of Rob Skiba. Uh, that's R-O-B-S-K-I-B-A. And he has a very interesting theory about that. I personally don't subscribe to that theory but I think it's a very interesting one. Um, in my opinion, I believe that there was another group of fallen beings, which we're actually going to discuss in another lesson, that actually took the idea of their brothers, of their brethren, and essentially found a loophole. And they decided they, were, they wanted to create this hybrid race again, but their idea was, let's not do it the old-fashioned way, the way that our, our buddies did it, because we know what happens when you do that. So let's find another way. And I believe that they used uh, genetic 
science to make this happen. Uh, I believe that they took uh, um, certain maybe willing, maybe unwilling human participants and they began to essentially gene splice. Uh, they uh, used certain physics that we are not aware of. Maybe we are because there's a couple of things that um, have actually come to pass here in the last few years of genetic uh, of genetics that could mean what they were actually doing or maybe they were doing it at a higher level uh, but this is how I believe they did it they they uh, did it through basically turning themselves from you know illicit husbands into mad scientists and taking the DNA of humans and uh, splicing it with their own and creating these hybrid beings but these new Nephilim, if we could say that, were, I believe, a, a lesser stock. They, they were sort of a, um, uh, they weren't purebreds. It's not the kind of Nephilim that you would get through sexual relations. It's a, it's a watered-down version of the original. They're like the JV team. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but these guys are pretty, pretty potent themselves, as we're going to see. Uh, but... These are some of the theories and opinions on how the afterward may have happened. There's actually another theory that I think is pretty interesting. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read the book of, of uh, Jubilees, it, it, it talks about how Canaan, who was uh, the son of Ham, actually went into the mountains of Lebanon, which, by the way, no one is allowed into the mountains of Lebanon even to this day. Do you guys know that? It's forbidden to go there. The government has it pretty much sealed off. But the idea, the story says that Canaan went into the into the mountains of Lebanon and in and in caves deep in those in those uh, canyons of those mountains, he found uh, pictographs, uh, essentially of some of the plans that uh, antediluvian humans or people from the before the flood actually left inscribed in drawings on the walls before I, they were actually washed away by the flood. And essentially Canaan took these blueprints and started utilizing these ideas and, and, and maybe partnering with some fallen beings and creating these genetic anomalies, these genetic abominations known as Nephilim. So that's another theory. I as feel well. like I lean towards that one. I just think... If even to this day, in the mountains of Lebanon, nobody can go in there, they're hiding something. And I now we so. just had the bombs over there. I don't know. It's interesting. I kind of feel like, in my opinion, that that probably, to me, makes the most sense. But it's interesting. So take those theories, and maybe you know of others that we don't know. Um, again, the Bible, as far as we know doesn't specifically tell us um, the the how, but now we want to kind of go into where it talks about actual scripture of who these beings were and what they did and where they lived and all of that. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, and that's actually a pretty common question that uh, I get, and I think we've gotten it on our, on our Zoom um, classes, is that, so... Where do we see these Nephilim in the Bible or in the Old Testament? Where are they? 
because I don't see them. I don't know where they are. Well, you'll be able to, they'll really pop out to you when you know what you're looking for. And when you sort of have this foundation and you read certain scriptures, then you see it. It, it, it literally pops out at you and you can't miss it. So let's, let's break it down. Let's see what the Word of God says about these Nephilim. And uh, we're, we're going to see a correlation between what the scriptures say, say about it. Uh, Elena is going to read uh, a scripture for us, uh, Numbers 13, uh, verses 31 through 33. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight." So if you're uh, uh, a Christian or if you uh, study the Bible, uh, or of course you've heard a lot of preachings, uh, this is probably a scripture you've probably heard before. It's probably one you've, you've read before. And the, you know it has its certain context on certain life lessons, but the, the true context of the scripture actually is far more interesting than any preaching uh, could ever give us. And uh, for those of you that, that study the Bible or know the Bible, you, you sort of know the backstory behind this. This is where uh, God has told Moses, hey, I'm going to give you this land that is going to be yours, and I want you to conquer it. So Moses sends uh, uh, 12 spies to essentially scout this land. And all of them come back to Moses and 10 of them give him a really bad report, except two, uh, Joshua and Caleb. And of course, this is what they tell Moses. And Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who say, hey, we can actually do this. We can make this happen. The others are literally scared out of their mind. And of course, the story goes that God tells them they are uh, going to wander 40 years in the desert until that generation dies out uh, because they didn't believe. You know, God told them, you know, that I will go before you and I will go behind you. And because they didn't believe, they didn't trust God, that's why they received that punishment. But if we really break down the scripture, it really tells us what they're looking at here. And it's interesting when they, when they say, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. That's, I think, a very interesting term. It devours its inhabitants. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that could possibly mean. And then they say, and all the people whom we saw there are men of great stature. Great height is another translation. There we saw the Nephilim or the Nephilim. And, and in certain translations, it's, it's in parentheses and, and says, There we saw the descendants of Anak, the Anakim, who came from the Nephilim. And we were, we were like grasshoppers in their sight or in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Now, were they exaggerating here? 
saying, you know, these were just a bunch of shacks. <laughs> I mean, Jewish people were pretty short. Yeah, they were pretty short. I think uh, uh, the average height of an Israelite was between 5'6 and 5'8. Uh, Saul was one of the tallest. He was about 6'1. So, but even if you're 5'6, five, 5'8, five, a seven foot person like a shack would be tall, but you wouldn't look like a grasshopper in their sight. I wouldn't think so. So, what would it take for you to say they, we were like grasshoppers in their sight? And then what's interesting, it ties in where they say, there we saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, that were known as the Anakim. And what we start seeing here, this scripture is sort of the, the, the launch point onto essentially what I call a Nephilim equation. And we start seeing how these descendants of Anak, they were known as the Anakim, are related or descendants of the Nephilim, as this scripture says. So if these spies are saying that the Anakim, the descendants of Anak, are descendants of the Nephilim, they're telling us, hey, these guys come from that stock. They come from that genetic pool. Now, we're going to see other scriptures that talk about other what I call Nephilim tribes or different Nephilim uh, groups. So Elena is going to read Deuteronomy 2.10 2, for us. The Amim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites call them Amim. See this formula or this equation sort of popping out at you. Anakim equals Nephilim. And the Emim equal the Anakim. Because this scripture says that they were the same. They were regarded as giants. As the Anakim. Except that the Moabites called them the Emim. They just had a different term for the same stock of people or group. Deuteronomy 2, 20 and 21. Lena? That was also regarded as a land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place. Here's another equation. The Zamzumim equal the Anakim, which equal the Emim, which equal the Nephilim. Except that the Amorites gave them a different name. They called them Zamzumim. This would make sense because everybody spoke a different tongue, a different language. So everybody referred to these same beings in different names. But they were all the same. They were all genetic abominations that were existing in this land. And they had certain features, like gigantism. They were very tall. Uh, uh, even the names speak of what they potentially looked like. For example, the, the word Anakim also has a context of long necks, people having long necks. Uh, and they had these essentially physical markers that you can tell that they were a bit different 
from normal people. But when you see this pop out, you start seeing these tribes, these groups of quote-unquote people that aren't really, that are a little bit different than, the, than others. So interesting. So I'm sensing a theme here of Eam. Yes, there's a lot of Eames here. We call them the Eames So fun. So as we're reading scripture, if we ever come across a tribe that ends in Eam, is that, are you pretty confident to say that every Eam tribe is Nephilim? Mostly, yes. Okay. Mostly or yes? Yes. Excuse me. Okay. Just yes. wanted to make that clear. So Elena's going to read another scripture, Deuteronomy 3.11. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. So this particular scripture is speaking of a guy named Og of Bashan. He was the king of Bashan. And... He, it says here that he was the remnant of the giants, but the actual Hebrew word there is the word Rephaim. He was the remnant or the last remaining of the Rephaim. And Moses actually explains how big his bed was. It was an iron bed. Ooh. And no, thank you. when you really sort of break down the, the cubit measurement, it's going to be about... 15 feet long and about six to seven feet wide. So tell me, just let's just use some basic logic. What would be the practical reason to build an iron bed that's 15 feet long? Could it just be some guy with an inferiority complex? <laughs> because you really wouldn't want to build an iron bed that big just because you, you wanted to compensate for something. The reality is that Oga Bashan was pretty big. He was about 12 feet tall. If you just go by the measurements of his bed, the guy would have been about 12 feet tall. And he dwelt in that area where all of these tribes lived. It was known as the land of Canaan, also the land of Bashan. And he was the remnant of that. So again, we see this formula. Rephaim is alike to Anakim, which is alike to Emim, to Zamzumim, and Nephilim. These are all tribes of the same genetic stock. Now we're going to read another scripture, uh, Deuteronomy 3, 13. All these names are really messing with my head. I hope they're coming across okay. I'm not a, um, what should I say, linguistic scholar. So I'm just reading them as I, as I go. Thank you guys for your patience. <laughs> Deuteronomy 3.13. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. Interesting. That whole land was called the land of the giants. Wonder why. It's probably a mistake. Probably a mistake, right? <laughs> well, it was known as that. Uh, here's another scripture. Uh, Numbers 21, 26. For Heshbon was the city of Sihan, Sihon, 
king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. And Sihon was another king, another Nephilim king. He was the king of the Amorites. And we're going to see how this tie, how the Amorites actually tie in to the Nephilim. But uh, uh, Sihon of the Amorites was also known as a Rephaim king. Uh, there's an, other scriptures that talk about how he and Og and other Rephaim kings partnered to, this, to go to war with other kings. And all of these guys were hybrids. They were genetic hybrids of supernatural genetics and natural human genetics, angel and human genetics. All of these guys were abominations, creations that were never meant to be. They were never meant to exist. But yet there they are in the land of Canaan, in the Levant, as it's also known, in the land of Bashan, all there, essentially squatting on the land that God gave his chosen people, the Israelites. And now he's telling them, I want these guys gone. Not because God's a genocidal maniac, but because of what these guys are. They were never meant to be. Now, we said how this really ties into the Amorites. So here's a, another scripture where the Amorites sort of tie in and come in. Elaine is going to read Exodus 23, 23 to 20, through 24. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So again, the, the idea here is that some of these tribes that are not Eames may have provided certain members of their people to be part of these experiments where some of these people actually uh, their genetics were actually taken to create more of these nephilim and they had to take people from somewhere so this is it, it's given us this context this is why god's telling them i will cut them off you shall not shall not bow down before their gods there's more to it than just these people who are different because they worship other gods there's something to them. There's something going on far deeper and far more sinister than uh, we, we see. And this is where God tells the Israelites to destroy the, all of the nations that were in the land of Canaan. God tells them, kill everything. Man, woman, child, and animal. Why would God do this? I've always had an issue with that. Growing up in church, it just never sat right with me that the God of the Old Testament would say that kind of stuff. And I'm, I mean, I'm a parent now, I'm a mom, we have two kids, and I just feel like without knowing this stuff, Genesis 6, about the Nephilim, 
um, knowing our enemies. You know, we, we've gone over the Genesis 3 account with the fall and who Lucifer, Satan really is. Now we've moved into Genesis 6 and really looking at the Nephilim. And next episode, we're going to go even further into knowing our enemies. I feel like it changes everything, at least for me and probably for you, right? I mean, this this really changes it because I just never knew how to answer when people would ask me, you know, how can you serve a God who would just kill all the things? I think it's kind of, and I don't want this to come across like weird, but in my mind, it was like, okay, if these men were evil, like, yeah, let's kill them, right? Kill the men. If they're, if they're truly evil, let's just kill them. But when it came to the women and especially the children and the babies, I just had a really hard time with that. And now being a parent, being a mom, there's the scripture in Luke 11 that talks about what father among you, if his son asked for a fish, would give him a serpent, you know? And how much more, if I'm an evil, if my sin nature in my sin nature, I can still give good gifts to my children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give good things and the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How can I expect Him to be the same yesterday, today, and forever? But in the Old Testament, He's killing all the, all the things. And this is a game changer because God was protecting the human race. He was protecting His image he was protecting his likeness. He was protecting the seed of the woman. And all of these tribes where God tells his people, go in, kill them all. Kill everything. There's no grace. Every single one of them were Nephilim tribes. Can we just take a moment and let that sink in? These tribes where God basically brought the hammer down they were not fully human. They were never meant to exist. And so I don't know about you, but this was a huge, almost relief for me and my faith journey of just knowing God is so good and he is love and he is just and he is merciful. And now I know when people bring this up or ask me about it, I'm confident in, in knowing, you know what? You don't want to serve the kind of God who could kill all these tribes? Well, guess what? I don't, want to, I don't want to serve that type of God either, and I don't. So here's the truth with Scripture, and it's so amazing. So I just, I don't know. This, these Knowing our enemies is so important because, as I said a couple episodes ago, we know the end. We know that the eastern sky is going to split. Jesus is coming back. Our enemies are going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever. We're going to be perfect. And Eden is going to be brought back to earth again. We're going to reign with him forever. But the beginning, what we're looking at is the beginning of the story. And we get it wrong. We're taught wrong. We we don't search for the truth, maybe, or we just don't know for whatever reason. And so the middle gets all muddied. And when you really look at who our enemies are, 
and all of these things, it really just, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's just me. I don't know if you're having these light bulb moments as well, but it's just so, so amazing to know that our God is good all the time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wants good things for his children and he will do whatever it takes to protect us and to love us and cover us. And I could just go on forever about that, but I won't. Well said, well said. And, you know, we, we mentioned, you know, Zihon, the king of the Amorites, that he uh, was a Nephilim as well. And there's these clues are actually found in other scriptures that you may have not read before or you may not seen it in its full context. Um, and in one particular scripture, God sort of confirms that the Amorites, in two scriptures actually, God confirms that these some of the Amorites were actually involved in these genetic experiments becoming Nephilim. Uh, Elena is going to read Amos 2.9. And this is God talking, right? This is God talking. Amos 2.9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. What's, what's interesting here is that God... I don't think would exaggerate the creator of galaxies and black holes and super massive stars. I don't think he would exaggerate about the height of something. You know, God doesn't need to tell the big fish story. <laughs> you know, I caught one this big. I think he's God. He doesn't have to exaggerate anything. So when he says with his own words that the Amorites, their height was like the height of the cedars, we have to pay attention to this clue. And if you really look at the landscape and the worldview of where the Bible cultures were, where the, where the culture, the Hebrew culture was, it was obviously in the Middle East. And there, there are cedars that grow there. And uh, cedars in that area, in that region, can grow anywhere between 20 to 60 feet. That's so, insane. That's insane. But why would God need to exaggerate? Why would why would he have to use any hyperbole whatsoever? He's God. Nothing's bigger than him. Yeah, he probably wouldn't. He's probably <laughs> being very realistic. Exactly. And here's another scripture where God is also aware. Remember, he's, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He can see it all. He's also aware of what is going on in the land of Canaan, in the Levant, in this area before the Israelites ever even get there, before Moses and his crew ever show up. Because this is what he tells Abraham. Elaine is going to read Genesis fifteen fifteen. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What is God referring to, to the iniquity of the Amorites? We believe that it's referring to this, this birth, this uh, production of these Nephilim. God knew this stuff was going on even during Abraham's time. 
So in other words, Satan and his crew had a lot of time to essentially inflate their numbers and just start going to town on creating these beings. And God, I believe, was aware as he's seeing these guys doing all of their little experiments and creating these Nephilim, I believe God is already moving the chessboard and saying, I'm going to take Abraham's descendancy and I'm going to destroy them. And I'm going to prove that I am God, that I am the God of all gods. Because as Elena said, you know, uh, you know, that God was protecting the human race. And as we said in the, in the first, I think the, the, the second podcast is what does God want? God wants a human family with him forever. That's his heart. That's his goal. So he is always looking to protect us, especially at the genetic level, which these fallen enemies of God are looking to attack constantly. But here is the scripture telling us that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God knew. He already knew what was going on. He already knew what these guys were planning and doing. But God was already putting a plan into motion to fully destroy it. So, as we see here, God then tells Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, destroy it all, destroy everything, every single man, woman, and child, and just completely annihilate it. Because all of these people here were Nephilim. They were people who were not fully human, as Elena said. And what's interesting is that as they start doing this, one very interesting thing that happens, and we're going to reference this later, is that Joshua, this is after Moses has already passed away, Joshua declares victory in the land of Canaan. And what he actually says is very interesting. In other words, how? what's his evidence? What's his declaration of victory? He says... There are no more Nephilim. There are no more Anakim in the land. There are no more giants in the land. That's his, essentially his evidence, his proof of victory, of cleansing this area. But then he adds, he says, yeah, all of them are gone, except for the ones in Gath. <laughs> and who comes from Gath? Anyone want to take a stab at it? Oh, me. Go ahead, Elena. Is it Goliath? Goliath and his brothers. They are the really some of the last remaining remnants of Nephilim. And who puts an end to Mr. Goliath? David. A young boy. <laughs> a young boy with a slingshot and a stone gets rid of a hybrid human supernatural being. That's how powerful God is, that he can use a small boy to destroy the enemy's works here on earth. And this is what we see. This is where these guys come from. This is how they come back in the afterwards. And God, as Elena said, is looking out for mankind. Because remember, God needs to preserve the human race so that what? The, pro the first prophecy can come to pass. That through the seed of the woman will come the one who will crush the serpent's head. That is Jesus. That is the Messiah. 
But it's interesting to see how when we see the truth on what the scripture is telling us and not sugarcoat it, not let it offend us, you know, not, not impose our modern 21st century worldview into the supernatural worldview of the Bible, but instead letting the Bible interpret itself by itself within its own context, then these things start to pop out. And then the things that people like Richard Dawkins and all of these other God-hating atheists will use to essentially belittle our faith, now we say, yeah, I'm not going to let that get to me. How many believers, how many people who were church-going Christians turned to atheism partly because of this, partly because they could not reconcile, like Elena said, that the God of the New Testament is saying he's love and he's all this other wonderful, you know, wonderful marshmallowy things. And then in the Old Testament, he's killing babies. He seems to be a capricious, genocidal maniac. But when we insert the Nephilim, it changes things. It's a game changer because now God is showing proof of his love for us. He wants to protect us, to preserve us, because we are made in his image and in his likeness. And to be human is to be the image of God. And if you have, and if you have these hybrid abominations, it's essentially a slap in the face to God of his image and his likeness. So this is the wonderful thing about diving into these scriptures or seeing these things pop out at us because now we can reconcile our the God of love in the New Testament is the same God of love in the Old Testament. So good. Oh, I hope this made sense. Um, that was a lot of information, a lot of names. I don't know about you, but when I read when I have read the Bible in the past, I would skip over the names. I'm like, yeah, the let's get to the good stuff. But names are so important. So I just challenge all of you who are listening and myself that as we look at the Bible and read it to, to pay attention to the names because it is extremely important. I hope this made sense. Um, we are going to keep looking at our enemies in our next episode and we are so excited about next week so stay tuned and we hope you guys have a great week thank you for joining us for this week's episode of sunday unschooled be sure to subscribe share and if you ever have any questions you can email us at sundayunschooled@gmail.com. at gmail.com we look forward to next week's episode.